0: Hello and welcome to Prejudice and Pride. I'm Claire Balding, and I'll be taking you on a tour of some of the creative, dramatic and surprising histories of National Trust Places. 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. To celebrate the significance of this anniversary, the National Trust is opening up its creaking oak closet and exploring how lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer folk have helped to both shape and preserve the housing the collections, the gardens and the landscapes in the Trust's care. I'm so pleased you're joining us for Prejudice and Pride. History, when it's recorded and written down, gives us a real window onto the past, but it can forget as much as it remembers. In the words of historian Howard Zinn, we learn most about the rich, not the poor, the successful, not the failures, the old, Not the young, the politically active, not the politically alienated, men, not women, white, not black, free people rather than prisoners. So we have to be suspicious of what's been left to us sometimes because we know it's only part of the story. Wealth and patriarchy have preserved the history of rich men. So it's privileged lives like their own that have left tangible evidence in National Trust places throughout the UK. But today, we want to look at the traces of other lives, those LGBTQ stories that weren't so well recorded. I'm joined in the studio by cultural historian and member of the National Trust Board of Trustees, Gus Caisley hayford and by community learning manager at Sutton House, the fabulous Sean Curran. Gus, first of all, can you tell us something about your area of expertise?
1: Um, it's lovely to be here, Claire. I'm a cultural historian, and my area is... Really trying to uncover those histories about the sorts of people that it's easy to forget. If you study O or A-level history, it's usually about the winners, it's usually about the men. And I've been really interested in thinking about colonial histories, about the histories of working class, and trying to uncover them through a cultural lens.
0: So when you join the National Trust as a trustee, you must immediately have been wanting to think, well, what's behind the curtain?
1: Oh absolutely. And I actually believe if anyone who's aware of the history of the National Trust, if you think about Octavia Hill, it was all about empowering ordinary people to investigate their heritage, to think about landscapes. And so I think it's pretty much warp and weft, this idea of opening up the Trust and coming in and seeing... All of these fantastic sites that we have, these amazing buildings, these incredible narratives, but many of them not actually being exploited, being used, being accessed by the public. I found that frustrating, but in things like Prejudice and Pride, I think we are absolutely getting back to the sort of spirit of Octavia Hill.
0: And we know that many of the opulent houses in the care of the Trust were built on the fortunes made in the slave trade especially in the 18th century. There were also black domestic servants. Some were companions for the children of of wealthy families. And more rarely, there were black musicians and scholars. What traces, if any, remain of the lives of black LGBTQ people from that time?
1: Well, like all of these histories of servants of the underclasses, that they are hard to uncover. But also the kind of the black servants, that their histories were even more difficult. But if you think about the proportions of... Black populations in cities like London, they were vast, huge numbers. I mean, there are huge numbers of prints and paintings that depict London as it was. If you think about Hogarth, there are almost always black figures.
0: What sort of freedom would there have been around sexuality or, or indeed gender?
1: Well, we know if, if you see those wonderful prints of Molly houses, it was absolutely kind of there, just as London is today kind of a place in which you can explore your sexuality in a variety of different ways, that the presence of a variety of different kinds of ways of living were absolutely part of 18th and 19th century London. But it just does not somehow seem to be accommodated in the authorised version of the history.
0: Let's talk now to the fabulous and effervescent Sean Curran. Uh, you've been looking at missing queer voices in the homes of, of the National Trust's historic houses. What were you looking for?
2: Well, to be honest, it started off as kind of a labour of narcissism, really, because i was looking for <laughs> um, I was looking for a sense of familiarity and kind of recognition. I think it's fair to say that most LGBTQ people are raised by straight families and in straight families. So you have to be a bit more creative about finding where you fit and your sense of a queer culture and I think that's probably why queer people tend to be more drawn towards the arts or to popular culture where we do see ourselves a bit more and it's a real shame that you don't necessarily see that in history as well. There was one particular experience I had in a historic house called Kelmscott in Oxfordshire which is one of the many William Morris related houses where Mae Morris lived with her companion in inverted commas mary lob for about 20 years and i heard about this through hearsay and went to visit the house mary lob was a land girl she dressed in a very androgynous way she was seen as quite a sort of intimidating figure by the locals and the only sign of her in Kelmscott was a really crude and unflattering caricature of her from behind and I actually found it really hurtful to see this because this was one of the very few occasions where I was expecting to see a gender nonconforming character from the past that I might have some sort of relationship with and she was dealt with in kind of like a dismissive and cruel way and this was part of my motivation really for trying to find some sense of... Not necessarily role models, but just some sort of visibility and also some sort of disapproval that queer identities are in some way a sort of contemporary affectation <laughs> and that they have always existed, they just haven't necessarily been named in the same way that we name them now.
0: And haven't been respected or treated fairly, because as you say, that a caricature, particularly from behind, that's very much point, look at this and laugh at it. Oh,
2: entirely. It was especially stark in a William Morris house when you're surrounded by so many depictions of... What typical feminine beauty looks like.
0: Is the trans experience more difficult to find any records of, Sean?
2: It is. There are problems around looking for queer identities anyway. It's not an unproblematic area because essentially what you're doing is retrospectively assigning contemporary labels on historical figures, which is problematic. But I think it's all right to say we are viewing this character through a queer lens he could be interpreted as gay or whatever. This becomes more problematic with trans identities, I think, because trans identities are still not really widely understood as well as they should be. It can be a really contentious issue. So it's these areas where it's difficult to then say, well, this is a trans figure, because actually we can't say that really. There are some much, much more obvious cases, like the Chevalier deon who's a soldier and diplomat born in France but lived most of their life in London, Tell me more. So in the latter half of their life, they lived as a woman. And before they died, they corrected all of the pronouns on their papers and documents. They corrected the pronouns to female pronouns. Although you'll notice I'm still sort of hesitantly using gender neutral pronouns because some trans people today will claim the Chevalier d'Aon as a genderqueer figure because of their fluidity and because they moved between genders. Uh Others will say, well, she used female pronouns when she died, so we should respect that. And this, again, is another problem that crops up exclusively around trans identities, I think, is about knowing the correct language to use around them.
0: There are some National Trust properties, like Fonthill Abbey, actually, that don't any longer have a house and where the collection might have dispersed around the country. But even then, you can find evidence, can't you? And you have yes. done.
1: Yes. Well, the Beckfords are a fascinating family. What one has to understand is the power that the slave trade had in affecting British society in the 18th century, that there are 11,000 voyages that leave Britain, travel to West Africa, and take 20% of the millions of people that were cast into slavery to the New World. And huge amounts of that money absolutely transforms our country, that it builds, you know, a new generation of very, very wealthy people, bankers, builders businessmen, but it's the Beckfords, William Beckford, who is absolutely at the epicentre of this. And he is twice the Lord Mayor of London. And he owns this huge 22,000 acre estate in Jamaica. And he is wealthy beyond all belief. And it's all self-made from slavery. And when he dies, he leaves a million pounds to his son. Wow. And a hundred thousand pounds a year income. And... His son is not the son that he possibly would have wanted to hand this money on because his son is gay and he's actually kind of very proud of his identity. He's not someone who is cowed by the conventions of the time.
0: Thank you so much, both of you, for your insight and good luck with your continued journey of lifting the covers. <laughs> That's how I'm going to see this. Uh, to Sean Curran, who is the Community Learning Manager at Sutton House and do go there if you can. There's an awful lot to discover. And also Gus Caisley who is a member of the National Trust Board of Trustees and a cultural historian as well. Now, history is made up of recorded and unrecorded lives and so are the places in the Trust's care. E.J. Scott visited Sissinghurst Castle in Kent to explore its famous stories and the traces of less well-known lives.
3: Sissinghurst Castle attracts thousands of visitors every year, especially for its lavish gardens. They were created by the writer Vita Sackville-West and her husband, Harold Nicholson, after they bought Sissinghurst in 1930. Although Vita and Harold loved one another deeply, they defied conventional ideas of love and marriage, with Vita having intense affairs with the writers Violet Trefusis and Virginia Woolf. Vita was famously the inspiration for Woolf's gender-bending character Orlando, who transforms their gender as they live for multiple centuries. We're going to learn more about Vita and Virginia, but there are other LGBTQ lives connected with Sissinghurst ...that remain virtually unknown, and this includes Dawn Langley-Simmons. She was the child of Sackville West chauffeur, and was born intersex, meaning she was born with anatomy that was neither defined as male or female, although she was wrongly assigned male at birth. She later underwent surgery to physically define her gender as a woman. She recalls her experience in her autobiography, which opens with the chapter, Growing Up in England... Dawn, A Charleston Legend by Dawn Langley-Simmons I remember Virginia Woolf arriving at Sissinghurst Castle swinging a large china basin by a knotted linen cloth. It was a pond pudding for Vita Sackville West lunch. I was a child. Seeing me standing there, for she liked children, Mrs Woolf asked me what I was going to be when I grew up. Without any hesitation, I replied, A writer. Oh, she said... Then, with a twinkle in her eyes, she walked off in the direction of her friend Vita's sitting room in the tower. Once described as the longest love letter in history, the novel Orlando, which Virginia wrote, depicted Vita as the hero, heroine, showing over the centuries how the boy, Orlando, changed into a beautiful woman. Had she lived a little longer, Vita would have been intrigued to know that the child Dinky, as she called me, Would have become a real life Orlando. The opening of Dawn's book sets the stage for the complex and fascinating stories to be found here at Sissinghurst. But how do we start to uncover the traces of Dawn's life here? Well, first I'd like to get a sense of the place where Dawn spent her formative years and perhaps its most famous resident, Vita Sackville West. Rising up in front of me is the red brick Elizabethan Tower. I'm going to head up there so that we can see Vita's writing room and the portrait of her lover, Violet Trefusis. We're here in Vita's writing room with conservation assistant Vicky and volunteer Peter and it's in the tower where visitors climb the stairs to peer in and all around us are pieces of evidence of her relationships outside her marriage with Harold including this portrait. Vicky, perhaps you could share its significance with us.
4: Absolutely EJ, it's a an extremely important part of our collection now largely because it's circa 1920. That is the time of the what we refer to as the Amiens crisis. And that is when both Vita and Violet actually effectively eloped to Amiens and they were going to be spending their lives together, potentially. But according to the mothers, both Alice Keppel, which was Violet's mother and Lady Sackville, Vita's mother, they insisted that the husbands, the respective husbands, actually went to collect the women and bring them back due to the terrible scandal and that is exactly what they did. And of course Vita at that time could then retreat back into her life with Harold and the boys and Violet was ostracized by her family, by society, basically everybody. Also she was asked to go and stay for two months with family friends in Tangiers and those family friends were the Laverys and it's John Lavery that painted this beautiful painting at that time. That's why it's so
3: significant. And it's absolutely stunning. She's so beautiful. You can see why Peter would have fallen in love with her. Most certainly. <laughs> she's
4: it, she's seductive. She's beautiful
3: and intelligent, may I also add. Peter, I'm interested in a story that's not told as frequently as the lives of the famous people and that was of Dawn. What traces do we have of Dawn's life that we can use as evidence to understand more about her?
5: Well we do have her autobiography and also obviously during her lifetime she created a lot of interest so a lot of others have written about her. No doubt some of the facts are true and some of them are not uh, necessarily true.
3: And from this autobiography and these reports, how do you see, what sort of character do you think she
5: was? Well, I can go by what Nigel Nicholson said, that she was unfailingly generous during her lifetime.
3: It strikes me that this is a surprising and rare and unusual story. For a start, there's a big difference between her life, isn't there, and the
5: Nicholson's. They were very much servants, Jack Copper and his wife Marjorie, who were the the parents of Dawn. They were Respected and cared for, but they were servants, not the, not aristocrats.
3: I believe she also inherited some she money. She did.
5: Um, she had a great friend with the Whitney family, and when Miss Whitney died, she left Dawn, I think, something like two million dollars, and a forty-room mansion.
3: So we know that Dawn moved to South Carolina in 1960, but I believe she, there was something quite extraordinary. She, she was actually in love,
5: and she married. She was. She married Mr. Simmons, who was a, a black garage mechanic, which, of course, at that time, although it was just about legal, I think then, was generally frowned upon by local society and i think she was ostracized by a, a great number of people. Peter
3: Vicky thank you so much for talking to me about these rare and complex stories it really has been a pleasure.
0: Well thank you very much been a pleasure talking to you.
5: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to prejudice and pride. To hear more in the series search for prejudice and pride in your podcast app or do have a look at the National Trust website.